One week ago, we were studying what it means to humble ourselves. The command in this passage, or the principal command, is humble yourselves, therefore. And we were asking the question, why do we humble ourselves, and how do we humble ourselves? And we, it's important to remember that to humble ourselves means to bring our hearts down to the level of our condition or our circumstances. When God sends or permits afflictions, then that which is outside of us, or our bodies in the case of, of sickness, God brings our condition or our circumstances low, and it is our duty and our responsible to match that with our heart. We humble ourselves, we bring our hearts down to match the level of our condition or our affliction. And to be more specific, we said that means humbly accepting God's timing. The timing of the affliction itself, the timing of the lifting up. It means accepting the, the manner in which God lifts us up as well as the measure of God's lifting us up. As opposed to grumbling or complaining or being ungrateful for that lifting up. And we're also called to be diligent and persevering to face the afflictions that God sends or permits. Well, now we're going to focus on what comes after the humbling. What follows after our time of humbling? Let's read the text, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7, picking up in the second half of, of verse 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now last week, another thing that we said is, why is it that we humble ourselves? And one of the reasons is because Humbling ourselves is the only way to what on the other side? The lifting up. If we would enjoy the lifting up of God, then we must go through the humbling that leads there. And if we avoid the humbling that leads there, at least the humbling of our hearts, you can't change the humbling of your condition. If you avoid the humbling of your heart, there's no lifting up. But rather you become proud or you become bitter So there is a lifting up, and it comes after we humble ourselves. In fact, Peter says, humble yourselves so that he may exalt you. There is an exaltation. There is a lifting up, and that lifting up is what we're going to focus on today as well as next week, Lord willing. And this should be a great encouragement to our hearts. We've talked a lot about humbling, affliction, lowness. And now we speak about lifting up. Please consider two main points in our outline. And the first of these is that there is a partial lifting up in this life. There is a partial lifting up in this life. When God sends or permits affliction in your life, he always does so for wise purposes. And our duty, our response is to humble ourselves under that affliction, under that mighty hand. But it is a comfort 
and a reassurance and an encouragement to us to know that there is a lifting up or an exaltation on the other side of that affliction and that humbling. It's not just affliction and humbling. It's an encouragement to know there is a lifting up. And the lifting up which God gives to his people begins with a partial lifting up in this life. There is a partial lifting up in this life. Now we have to say at the outset that this partial lifting up is not a promise and it's not a guarantee. And so you just throw your hands up and you say, it seems like despair. Why endure difficulty and affliction and even humble ourselves under it for the mere possibility of a partial lifting up? Is the Christian life therefore just a lottery? Just a game of chance? Well, some of you are going to win, but some of you are not. Is, is that really the conclusion? Now, this is just the start of the sermon, isn't it? We're just getting started. We must say that the partial lifting up in this life is not a promise, and it's not a guarantee, but that should not lead us to throw up our hands and say, whatever then, I give up. I'm out. I'm not going to play a game of chance. I'm not going to play the odds for a possible, potential, partial lifting up in this life. But the fact is, the, the reality that there even is a partial lifting up in this life is mercy. Are you owed any lifting up? Do you deserve a lifting up? You see, if you throw up your hands at the, at the possibility of a partial lifting up, it's because you think you are owed more. But we ought to be grateful that there is a partial lifting up in this life, and we don't even deserve it. But let me speak more positively. Every Christian who has spent some years knowing and loving and serving our great God will have their own testimony and acknowledgement that in their own lives and in the lives of others whom they know or have known, that they have seen two things, great affliction, but also great deliverance. Just this past week in the afternoon, what did we do? We dedicated a whole hour and a half to doing what? To thanking God for his goodness, thanking God for his kindness. Every single one of those expressions of thanks was a, thank, a thankfulness or an expression of gratitude for a lifting up, a blessing, an exaltation, a lifting up, God, you have done this for me. God, you have done this for us. These are all partial liftings up in this life. And it was right that we should give thanks to God publicly for the ways in which he has lifted us up in this life. We have many people in this congregation who are here despite cancer treatments, heart surgeries, heart transplants, and more. They are, they have been partially lifted up in this life. There is a lifting up in this life. And God is often pleased to, to send not only affliction, but also to send a resolution or a remedy or a way out. Remember that God always bounds and limits 
the afflictions that he permits or sends according to his wise purposes. And no Christian who has spent any time in the Lord could say, no, there is no lifting up in this life. They'd say, what are you talking about? What is your testimony? What is the testimony of those around you? We see it. God does lift us up from our afflictions. And in the pastoral ministry, there have been many moments, even in this year and in previous years, where we as pastors have, have sat there and said, we don't know what to do for this person. We don't know how to help them. We're not sure what to do. Is this just the way that it's going to be? And it could have been the Lord's will that, yes, that is the way it's just going to be. But in so many cases, we've seen the Lord's kindness and goodness. And those things are now in the past. They're now resolved. They're now done. Not because we found some perfect solution, but because God provided a lifting up. So therefore, brothers and sisters, when God sends afflictions, we ought to pray to God earnestly to lift us up from our afflictions, knowing that there is a partial lifting up in this life. In Psalm 30, verses 1 and 2, the psalmist says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. The psalmist says, God lifted me up. You've drawn me up. You have given me victory or protection from my enemies. You have healed my body when I cried to you for help. Now, if a lifting up in this life is not a promise or a guarantee, then why are there so many prosperity preachers? Why is it that so many Christians are so convinced that there is a lifting up in this life and that they can get it if only. Well, I'm talking about the prosperity gospel. They've been told that God has promised them health and wealth. They've been told that if only they do certain things, health and wealth will follow or prosperity will follow. You see, if we allege, if we state that there is a guaranteed and promised lifting up in this life, then we are essentially taking upon ourselves and, and granting the prosperity gospel. But Jesus said, in this world, in this life, you will have tribulation. And if God does not give us health and wealth, which he never promised to give us, we should not be angry or upset. But let me make a brief comment about why it is that some people believe are convinced by the prosperity gospel. And where many people go wrong is in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs gives us general principles and statements of truth. They give us wisdom. And the, the mistake that people make is to turn wisdom and general principles into either law or promise, or law that leads to promise. So they think that if they do exactly what the Proverbs say, then exactly what the Proverbs speak about coming after that will certainly result. Like the Proverbs are just a, a little blessing factory. And if only you do the first part of the proverb, you'll get the second part of the proverb. Because the Proverbs are full of statements of, 
The righteous and the holy are blessed, but the wicked fall into destruction and all kinds of, of contrasts and parallels of prosperity and blessing for the righteous and the holy and adversity and death for the wicked. And so they take these general statements and principles of, of truth, this wisdom literature, and they turn it into a promise. So therefore, those who have health, if you're righteous, if you're holy, if you live for God, you will have these things because the Bible says so. And if you're suffering sickness or loss, you must be sinful because that's what the Proverbs say. So they turn these general principles and truths of wisdom into laws of, of production. If only you do A, therefore you will get B. They turn principles into promises. They turn wisdom into law. The Proverbs warn us about the dangers of strong drink or the dangers of lending. And so people say, we cannot have any alcohol, which is not true. Or they say, we should never lend a cent to anyone, which is not true. There are all kinds of things that the Proverbs warn us about or give us wisdom regarding such things, but people take those that wisdom and turn it into law, or they take principles and they turn it into promise, and all kinds of problems follow. So someone who holds to the prosperity, not gospel, would say, no, the word of God states that there is a lifting up for you, and you can get it if only you call and pledge so much money right now. You can get it. You can have this. They, they make it a promise, and then people are living with this expectation and, and then disappointment because they've set their heart on a lifting up in this life that's not coming for them unless the Lord wills it. The Proverbs don't work where you put in the right quarter and you get the right gumball that pops out for you. This doesn't make the Proverbs untrue. It just means you need to understand what they are. They're general statements of true principles. And if you treat the book of Proverbs as absolute statements of promises, then you cannot possibly understand Ecclesiastes afterwards, which says those general principles, they don't always play out in reality. Sometimes the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer, and it's an enigma. You have to affirm both Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. So what is the point? Are, are we sidetracking? Are we getting off the path? No, the point is that there is a partial lifting up in this life, but it's not a guarantee or a promise, and it's not to be drawn from the Proverbs. Where does the partial lifting up in this life come from? It comes from God's kindness, from God's mercy, from his fatherly care for his children. And it's confirmed by the common experience of believers throughout history who say, taste and see that the Lord, he is good. But there is more that we can say under this first point, because for the Christian, there is a guaranteed partial lifting up in this life, but it's not health and it's not wealth, it's not fame and it's not fortune, it's not peace and it's not prosperity, at least peace in the world, so what is the partial but guaranteed lifting up for the Christian in this life? It's God's work of grace in your soul. It is God's work of grace in your soul. How do we talk about Adam's sin? One of the words that we use to describe it is the fall 
of man. When you fall, what happens? You go down, low. In the fall of man, because Adam was a federal head, a representative of all mankind, we all fell in him. In Adam's fall, sinned we all. And in that fall, we fall to the lowest of lows. As enemies of God, and in body and soul, the body is now corrupted, and the soul is also corrupted, and we are condemned. We're corrupted by sin and condemned for sin in both body and soul. That's the lowest of the low, dead in sins and trespasses. But in this life, God had mercy on us. He sent his preachers to declare the good news of life, new life, in Jesus. And we heard that call. In that call of the gospel, he sent and infused the power of the resurrection to penetrate our souls and cause them to be born again. This is the regeneration of the soul through the preaching of the gospel. And the regeneration or the new birth of the soul is a lifting up. It is a transformation because the soul consists of the mind and the will. And with the mind, we perceive and understand. We, it's, it's intellect, understanding. We, we suddenly understand the gospel. And with the will, we, we choose, we make decisions. And with the will, we, we choose and we embrace Jesus Christ. I understand, I see Jesus Christ with my mind and I embrace him with my will. And then our affections are, are the, the movements of that, of that will and our affections all center on Jesus Christ, trusting in him. And when we have a, a notional knowledge of Jesus, of Jesus Christ and an assent with the will and then a confidence in the affections. What is that? It is faith. God lifts up the soul in regeneration and gives us faith to perceive and to assent and to trust and rest in Jesus Christ. In other words, God makes us believers through the effectual call of the gospel that regenerates us and gives us faith. That bringing to life of the soul out of spiritual death. What is that but a, a great lifting up? And yet there's more because believing in Jesus Christ, resting in him and receiving him by faith, we are justified. Our sins are forgiven and his perfect righteousness is attributed, it's imputed to us. And yet there's more. He lifts us up out of, our, out of our deadness. He lifts us up out of our guilt and sin and condemnation. He lifts us up positively, positively to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he lifts us up even further by adopting us into his family, saying, you are my children. You are my sons. You are my daughters. And brothers and sisters, this lifting up of the soul in this life through regeneration, through justification through adoption, it exceeds, it far exceeds any trial or trouble in this life. In other words, the lifting up in this life is disproportionately higher than the lows of the afflictions that God sends or permits to us. But the lifting up that the believer experiences in this life is not just something in the past. It's something in the present and something that's ongoing for the future because that work of regeneration in the soul as God transforms the mind and the will and the affections, it continues. 
in sanctification. As the word of God is preached to us, as the word of God is read and studied by us, God continues to give us more and more light in the mind. And he also conforms us more and more to the image of his son in our will. He makes us more obedient and understanding. And he does this in a way that we cannot fully or finally fall away from him. Do Christians step into darkness? Yes. Do Christians fall? Yes. But Christians do not fully or finally fall away from God because he so preserves us. Now, this means that as sanctification continues along with preservation, it's an ongoing lifting up of the soul. And by what means does God lift up the soul and and sanctify it? It's not just the ministry of the word. It's also the stadium of suffering where you've got to run your laps or the school of sorrow where you must attend class. It's often through means of afflictions. It's often through God's mighty hand that he is sanctifying us. And although we see our afflictions bringing our condition low, when we bring our hearts low to match it, that is how God exalts us by sanctifying us because we have learned to trust and serve him. It is by means of afflictions, oftentimes, and for all Christians, that God lifts us up. So the bringing low is a means of lifting me up, yes. But the bringing low is not the lifting up itself, no. The bringing low is a means to lifting you up. Thomas Brooks said this. He said, stars shine brightest in the darkest night. Grapes come not to the proof till they come to the press. Spices smell sweetest when pounded. Gold looks the brighter for the scouring. Such is the condition of all God's children. They are the most triumphant when most distressed, most glorious when most afflicted. As their conflicts, so their conquests. As their tribulations, so their triumphs. So the darkness of the night makes the the light of the moon and the stars shine the brighter. The, The affliction of our conditions brings us to a better lifting up as God sanctifies his children more and more through afflictions. So in sum, for the soul, there is a partial lifting up from sin and death in this life that is guaranteed for the believer. It has already begun and it is continuing, but it is partial. It is partial but guaranteed, a work of God's grace and God's power, and it should be a great comfort to us that though the outer man wastes away, though the wallet wastes away, there is a lifting up taking place in our souls that cannot be stopped. Is that not what Paul says, that though the outer man is wasting away, the inner man is being renewed God is lifting up our souls even as our bodies and our circumstances are brought low. But if you don't humble yourself under his mighty hand, then there is no lifting up of the soul. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand because there is a partial lifting up in this life. Pray that God would lift you up from your afflictions. Be diligent to do what you may to remove them. But know this, that God has lifted you up from your sins. And this brings us in the second place to our second and final main point. 
Number two, there is a complete lifting up at the end of this life. There is a complete lifting up at the end of this life. Last week we said one of the difficulties is accepting God's timing. The timing of the affliction, the timing of the lifting up, if there is one, and to what, in what manner and to what measure. If we ask, when will we be lifted up, then we can answer as we have that there may be a partial lifting up in this life. We see those who are ill get better. We see those who have lost recover. We see those who have suffered are comforted, and so on. But the scriptures teach us, brothers and sisters, and the scriptures promise us, and the scriptures assure us and reassure us that for every single one of God's children, for every single one of Jesus Christ's sheep, there will be a complete lifting up at the end of this life. There is a complete lifting up for all of us. Consider four things about this lifting up. First, it is certain. This lifting up is certain. We are no longer speaking in terms of possibility or probability or likelihood, but certainty. There is, without any doubt, a complete lifting up for the Christian at the end of this life. How do we know with such certainty? How can we say this? How can we hold on to this in our hearts? Because on the first day of the week, the tomb of Jesus Christ was empty. And because even now, there sits at the right hand of God, Jesus Christ, a resurrected, immortal, incorruptible, glorious man. And his lifting up, as we heard just recently from Pastor-elect Hayden, is the guarantee of our lifting up. We were reminded that the ascension and the session, the sitting down of Jesus in heaven, is the guarantee of our participation in the same how do I know that my lifting up is certain? Because Jesus sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he is the guarantee of our lifting up. His work is finished. It is done. He has sat down. Therefore, our lifting up is certain because his lifting up is complete. Remember, Peter has, has mentioned the sufferings and subsequent glories of the Christ he suffered. He's not suffering anymore. He entered into glory. He was lifted up and exalted. And so he has made our lifting up certain. Second, this lifting up will also be perfect. It is certain and it is perfect. When we die, perfection awaits us. This is not like going from elementary school to middle school 
or middle school to high school, or high school to college, or college to a master's degree, and so on. This is not like going from level one of the game to level two of the game, where it's just more difficult now. You're stronger, but it's more difficult. We do not advance from one level of difficulty to the next. No, for the Christian, when we die, the lifting up of the Christian is to perfect the Christian. It is the end. It is the completion. It is difficult to imagine because we have never experienced perfection. But it is a reassurance to know that perfection awaits us. In next week's sermon, we will talk more about what that perfection is like, what that lifting up is actually like for the soul and for the body. But I want you to know for now that it is perfection, not level two, not the next step in a further process, but perfection. This leads us in the third place to say that it is final. It is final. We will not be lifted up only to fall again. We will not be restored only to be lost. Adam was innocent. Adam was upright. Adam was righteous and just and holy. But he was able to fall. And so there is a glory for us that exceeds the glory of the garden because we will not be able to fall. It is not only perfect, but it is confirmed perfection. That, therefore, it is final. It cannot be lost. It cannot be taken away. We will be so lifted up in certainty and perfection that there will not be a possibility of falling away or losing the glory that Jesus has won for us. It's final. It's all over. I still have stress dreams that I'm back in school and I have sufficient awareness in most of those dreams to tell myself, I shouldn't be here. I already did school. I'm done with it. And I try to wake myself up in this dream, telling myself I, I shouldn't be here. And it may sound strange, but it's a dream. I'm telling people, I have a PhD. I have a PhD. Not as a bragging, not as a means of bragging, but just saying, like, I'm not supposed to be back in this situation. Well, in heaven, there's no stress of returning to what was before. It's final. You won't have stress dreams either. <laughs> Fourthly, this lifting up is negative and positive. The lifting up that God promises and guarantees for his people it is negative in the sense of taking things away. It's a removal of suffering. It's a taking away of sin and sorrow. All of the pain and the weakness, the temptation, the difficulty, all of those things in this lifting up, we are lifted up from all of that. Lifted up from sin and sorrow, lifted up from shame and from suffering. Therefore, our lifting up is negative as all that is wicked, all that is evil, all that is defective, all that is incomplete is removed 
but it is also positive. It's not just a taking away of the bad. It's also a granting of the good. It is an exaltation to glory. Because when God promises to lift us up, he isn't just saying that suffering will cease, but also that we will enter into a new and a wonderful glory that we will experience in a way that we have not experienced here. Think of it like this. If you were drowning, sorry to give you stress dreams, but if you were drowning and someone brought you back up to the surface of the water, that would be a mercy, wouldn't it? I'm not drowning anymore. I'm at the surface. I'm able to breathe. I'm up on on the top again. But that would simply be a reset. Your drowning has ceased. But how would it be if someone lifted you up from drowning and then they brought you into a yacht? I don't know what a yacht's like, but it sounds great. It would be so wonderful not only to have your suffering removed, but to be elevated into a state of luxury and relaxation and enjoyment. Rest. You've been drowning. Rest. Be at peace. Enjoy. And so the lifting up that is promised to us is not just a taking away of all that is evil and all that is painful. It is also a granting to us of all of that glory that Jesus Christ has won for us. We get to enjoy it, to participate in it, to experience it. It will be what we are, not just what we do or what we experience. It will be our very being. And the lifting up, the exaltation of the believer, is nothing more and nothing less than a participation in the fullness of the glory that Jesus has won for his people. You see, it's easy to say that in a sentence, but the grandeur of that sentence is is beyond capability of comprehension or expression. Let me repeat it. The lifting up and exaltation of the believer is nothing more and nothing less than a participation in the glory that Jesus has won for his people. Is there a better glory than that? Is there something greater, something beyond, something other, something more than the glory that Jesus has won through his suffering and death and new life? Brothers and sisters, we need to to concenter, to bring everything together in the center. All of our understanding of this glory needs to center on Jesus Christ and what he has won for us. And if we have questions or doubts about the certainty of this lifting up, then what we need to do is to look at the cross and say, Jesus was there and he died for me. And look at the tomb and say, Jesus was there and he rose again for me. And we need to look to heaven and say, Jesus is there, and he has ascended and sat down for me. Because when we look at our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we see that through his suffering and his death, he won an eternal inheritance for his people, an inheritance of incorruptible glory, a new creation and perfection of all things. And that glory is our lifting up what Jesus has done and won for us. Now, it was at this point in my sermon in the Spanish ministry where I said, we have to pause here because we don't have time to finish the rest of what I intend to share because I want to give more detail about what is this glory that Jesus has won for us? 
We've said that it's certain. We've said that it's perfection. We've said that it's final. We've said that it's positive and negative. But, but what is it more specifically? And that deserves more time than the few minutes that remain. And so we will focus on that more fully in the next sermon. The glory that Jesus has won for us. But brothers and sisters, we have seen so much already. And as a Christian, if you're young in the faith or you're just young and a believer, one of the things that you need to understand or come to understand is that whether someone said it or not, you may have this expectation that God's people shouldn't suffer in this life or that God will lift them up in this life. And it's a difficult but important lesson to understand that though there is a partial lifting up in this life, it's not a guarantee or a promise. And the lifting up that the scriptures really point us to is that certain perfect and final lifting up at the end of this life. And that can seem so disappointing. You mean until I die? It's the stadium of suffering and all the laps I have to run in it? You mean until I die, it's the school of sorrow and I have to attend every class? Why? And we need to look back at Jesus and say, what was the path of the cross? Why did he suffer? Why did he endure all of that sorrow and shame though he committed no sin? It was so that he would win for us a glory afterwards. And we are not greater than our master. We should not grumble at the stadium of suffering or the school of sorrow. Rather, we should humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. And if you find that truth and reality of this life to be disappointing, then you're not looking at the right things. You're not looking at the lifting up of your soul in this life. You're not looking up at how many testimonies of God's lifting up in this life we do have. But ultimately, you're failing to understand just how powerful and wonderful that final, that certain perfect and final lifting up truly is and truly will be at the end of this life. There is a complete lifting up for us at the end of this life. And we can set our hearts upon it because what we're really doing is setting our hearts upon Jesus Christ because it's all found in him, isn't it? And when we do that, it is certain, it is perfect, it is final, and it is our duty to humbly wait until that time. So brothers and sisters, with anticipation, next week we will speak in even more detail about the lifting up that God gives to his people and the glory and the exaltation to which God calls us in a certain and a perfect and a final way. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you care for us and that you have given us such a wonderful inheritance in Jesus Christ, such a wonderful glory, nothing held back. We thank you that this lifting up is a certainty. It is assured. We thank you that there is also, that it, it pleases you so many times 
to lift us up even in this life, to give us mercy and comfort, to give us joy and enjoyment, to give us not only possession of good things, but enjoyment of good things. You are so abundantly merciful and kind to us. And beyond these exaltations and liftings up in this life, you have given us that great and glorious lifting up in Jesus. What else and what more can we say other than to thank you for your kindness and your goodness to us in Christ Jesus? Help us to humble ourselves under your mighty hand so that at the proper time you might exalt us. We pray this in Jesus' name.